And I'd also like to invite Regina Kane to come up front. Regina has been coming to uh, Parker Ford Church for a number of months, and she asked for a little bit of time this morning to share a testimony. Yep, should be on. Should be good. Yep. Hi, good day, everyone. My name is Regina. I live in the country of Trinidad and Tobago, which is in the Caribbean. But when I am in the United States of America, I live in this neighborhood, the far side of the neighborhood. One of the things I like to do is to walk. I love to walk. And while I am here, I would go for walks with my grandson, who is a toddler. I would take him more or less along Ellis Woods because that's where I would normally enter the neighborhood, enter and leave one way or another on the street. So we would walk along Ellis Wood and many times we would branch off into other streets just to explore and see what's on that way. And before I go further, I have to say that I don't have a very good head for directions. <laughs> I don't. Don't ask me where is north and south and east and west. If I'm outside and the sun comes up, I know that's the east and so on. But other than that, I don't know. I don't have a head for directions. So we would walk along Ellis, Ellis Wood Road. As I said, that's the road that would bring me in or take me out when I'm leaving the area. And somehow, I got it into my head that since we leave one way, we can leave one way and come back another way, then Ellis Wood has to be some sort of road that if I start here, I can come all the way back to where I started without coming the way I went. So we would walk, and I walk and I walk, and I realize what a long road Ellis Woods is. So I said to myself, when my grandson is not with me, I will take this walk and I will go right around and come back where I started. And then one Saturday afternoon, everybody else had to go out and I was at home and I said, you know what? This is the opportunity I would take to walk around Ellis Woods and conquer this Ellis Woods. <laughs> And I dressed to go. Now, this was at the height of winter, really. It's the height of winter. And I dressed appropriately, layers of clothes, gloves, etc. And I walked. I started to walk. And I walked, and I walked, and I walked. Up the inclines and down, up and down, I walked. And Ellis Woods, there's hardly much traffic on Ellis Woods, an occasional car, and very few walkers, and especially on a day like that, no walkers. <laughs> so I walked, but that was okay because as I said, I enjoyed walking. And eventually I saw one man coming out of his driveway, and he said to me, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going around Ellis Woods. 
how far do I have to go? He said, just about a mile and a half. So, okay, I walked. And I continued to walk. No sight of this end of Ellisworth. Eventually, I came to a corner that was seemingly the end of Ellis Woods, but that wasn't in my mind because Ellis was supposed to go right around. <laughs> so it didn't faze me much. If it went around, then from this point to that point, there had to be some connecting road. So I stood at that corner and I said, should I turn right? Should I turn left? No idea. No sense of direction. I crossed the road because there was some sort of a diner opposite where I was standing. And I went there, and there was a woman there, and I asked her, I said, how do I get to the connection of Elliswood Road? I've just come down here, and I want to get back on the other side of Elliswood Road. She didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> but she went to someone in the back, and she, said, she obviously asked, and she came back and said, I have to go back the way I came, and I will meet crossroad. When I come to that crossroad, turn right. Go along that road, and I will see a park and a police post. So I did go back. The crossroad wasn't too far from the end of where I was. And I stood at that crossroad. There was a cemetery on one side to the left, and this road to the right. A little higher up, there was another road turning right. And I stood at that corner and I said, should I go right this way? Suppose I go down that road. How far do I have to go? And there's no park there. Then I have to come all that way back to this corner and start again. Go down the second road, no park. Where should I go? And I stood there. Now, this time it's getting dark because I left home around 3 o'clock. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the winter light is starting to dim. And I am standing at this corner trying to decide, should I go right? Should I walk all the way back around? Um, subsequent to this walk, I learned that I had walked already over six miles to get me to where I was. <laughs> So I am thinking, <clears throat> should I go down there and then have to come back? Or should I just go where I came from? But I'm thinking, as I said, Ellis Woods is a lonely road and it's winter. And if I have to walk all that, darkness is going to catch me on Ellis Woods Road. There are no street lights on Ellis Woods Road. And the houses are not very near to the road. Most of them are not near to the road. And I'm thinking, darkness, no light. If a car should pass, nobody is going to see me on the road. If something should come out of the woods, I am at risk. What should I do? And I am standing there trying to make up my mind. Meantime, cars are coming and they're stopping at the corner and going their way, stopping and going their way. One woman eventually, as she stopped, she indicated to me, go across, go across. I said to her, I don't want to cross. 
And I told her I wanted to get to Ellisburg. I told her what had happened, what the woman had told me <clears throat> about going right. She said, okay, you stay here. I will go down that road. And if I see the park, I will come back and I will let you know. And I'll take you there. So she went her way and I am standing there at the corner. And it seemed that she was taking forever. And I'm saying, <laughs> darkness and Ellisword Road, let me start to walk and go back where I came from. So <clears throat> I decided home, I'm walking back. And I actually stepped off the curb to start my journey. And as I stepped off the curb, I saw her car coming. And she said, I went the whole road around the area. There's no park. There's no police station. Where do you want to go? I said, well, I know if I get onto Cedarwood, Cedarville, from Cedarville, I'll be able to find my way to Ellisword. So she said, I don't know the area, but, and I don't have a GPS, but I have a friend who has one. I will call. So she called. Now you might say, so why didn't you call? Call somebody. I couldn't call. I left my cell phone home. I knew where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> so she called and got directions to see the word. So she said, come on, I'll take you. We got in the car and we drove off. Came to a road, wasn't Cedarville. I couldn't help her, I didn't know. <laughs> Nothing looked familiar. So she called again, stated our location, and again, the friend told her how to get to Cedarville. We gone again. Eventually, we did come to Cedarville, and we were driving along Cedarville. Nothing looked familiar to me. Nothing. I recognized nothing. But we continued. And then there was a house where some people were standing in the yard, and she asked, well, how do we get to Ellis Woods from this point? And they told her, back up the road. We were on the wrong end of Cedarville. So we turned around and came back. So when we reached to where I knew, I said, yes, this is it. I know her. I know her. And we drove until we came, as I said. I used the entrance of Ellis Woods to get into where I live. So she drove there, and she took me right into my driveway. And I said to her, I said, but in all of this, we didn't even ask names. We didn't exchange names, anything. So she told me her name was Beth. And I apologized for taking up her time and whatnot. She said, well, just like me, her relatives had left home. And she was free. And she just decided that she would go around, maybe the malls or other places, and just browse around. So she was free. And we talked a while. And then I said to her, I said, Beth, you were my angel today, you know. And that incident, that happened. And it was not until I returned to Trinidad sometime after that, that that whole incident came back to me. The Holy Spirit, I should say, brought back that incident to me. And he was showing me how the 
physical world mimics the spiritual world. And he said, we as God's children, we too think we are sure that we know where we are going and we step out to go. We are sure we know what our vision is and we proceed to conquer that vision. We are sure we know what we need to do and we go out on our own and do it. And he was saying that when we as God's children leave the fold of God, we step out of his light and we step into spiritual darkness where we could experience all the hazards and the danger that await us in the spiritual realm, darkness realm. And he said, you know, but God is love. And we will all come to our crossroads. God will provide that crossroads for us. When we can decide whether we will go down a road that we know or take a chance on a road that we don't know to see if we can find our purposes that we set out to do, to conquer. And he said, if we come to the, when we come to those crossroads, if we should make the decision that we are going back to the fold of God and we take that step forward to reach home, he said, God will send an angel to take you home. And surprisingly, for the, um, about two weeks ago, I saw a quote that I thought was very apt. And then yesterday, I saw a man wearing a T-shirt with a quote, which I thought was also very apt for this situation. The man's T-shirt read, it's not the destination, it's all about the journey. The other quote said, well, I thought both quotes were very apt to what God was showing me. And the other quote read, life takes you along different paths. Love brings you home. And God says, when you come to your crossroad, and you make a decision to come back to the fold, I will send an angel to bring you home. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, Regina. Thank you for sharing this morning. Our scripture for today is found in Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter, verses 11 through 32, and I would invite you to stand as we read this together. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. I can't get that image of uh, Aiden out of my mind. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, 
but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older son became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. Let us pray. Father God, uh, lead us in our uh, examination of this, this passage. And Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in and through us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, this, this story that Jesus told one day has been called the greatest short story in the world. And it's not without reason. You know, this one story contains so much. There's so many different facets and so many different levels that are contained in this story. It's kind of in contrast to those of us who, like myself, take up a lot of space and don't have a whole lot to say. This parable is no different from others that Jesus told in that there is a deeper and underlying meaning. Jesus never told a story just for the sake of telling a story. There was always a lesson to be learned, always a truth that he wanted to communicate, always a point that he wanted to get across. And what better way would there be to get that point across than to tell a story? Jesus told his stories, his parables, in, a, in such a way that they were remembered. They always dealt with something that was familiar to his listeners, something with which they could connect. might not be always familiar to us in all aspects, but it was to those in Jesus' day. But then there was always a little twist. There was always a little turn in the stories that he told to get people's attention and to help them remember it. That meaning was always there. Not everybody got it, but it was there for those who were listening, those who had ears to hear that truth and then apply it to their daily living. There's always a choice to be made, isn't there? We can either accept or reject the truth that is presented, but we can't just ignore it. 
Jesus told his stories in such a way that to ignore them, to put off a decision for another day, was really a sense of rejection. Not only was there no time like the present, but the present is the only time as far as Christ is concerned. The present was the only time as far as the younger son was concerned in this story that Jesus told as well. He went to his father one day and asked straight out, Dad, I want what you're going to, what I'm going to get when you die. I want my share of the inheritance, and I want it now. I don't want to have to wait for it. And doesn't this really sound like our society today? You know, nobody has any patience. Get what you want. Get it right now. Buy now, pay later, credit cards, easy loans. Um, you know, everybody knows what they want. They want it now. And a lot of times they get it. You know, the, the marketplace has been responsive to people's desires to have what they want, to have that immediate gratification. I haven't shopped for a new car in about six or seven years, but I was amazed when I did the last time. The salesman was saying, oh, take the car. Just, just drive it. Take it home. Take it home. Keep it overnight. And, of course, loans, no problem. You might not always like the terms of the loans, but they're very ready to give you a loan at the car dealership. And how about fast food? You know, the other day I, I pulled into Burger King, was not in a hurry, was not really in a rush for anything, but I'm assessing how many cars are in the parking lot, how many cars are in the drive-through, which would be faster if I went in, or, and I really didn't need to be. But we get very impatient. We can't really wait. You know, technology experts tell us that the bar for speed and technology just keeps getting raised higher and higher, the processing speed of computers, the speed of the Internet on which we connect. And how about just the changes that have take, taken place in making phone calls in recent history? I don't know if there's anybody here in this service. There was in the other service who remembered having to go through an operator to make a phone call. And if you, well, we see some hands, if, if you were on a party line, you had to wait until they got off the phone. Then you had to connect through an operator. Then there was the rotary dial, remember? Yeah, Dave Ziegler still has a rotary dial, he told us in the first service. The dial and click, 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 click. Then we had the push button phone, right? And then the speed dial. And now all we have to do is talk to our phone, you know, call so-and-so, and it just dials it out. Remember when in our area we were required to dial the area code and how angry people got over dialing three more digits and how long would that actually take to push those three buttons to do that? You know, patience is much more of a virtue today than it ever was. In any case, no matter how strange it sounds, it really wasn't unusual for a father to divide his estate among his sons if he wished to retire and, you know, kind of pull back from actual management of things. But there's no indication in this parable that Jesus told that the father was even considering that or even thinking about doing that. Uh, the son wants what is rightfully going to be his, and he wants it now. He doesn't want to have to wait for the old man to retire or kick the bucket. He wants it now, and remarkably, he gets it. The father asks no questions. He puts up no fuss. 
We don't hear him trying to talk the younger son out of it. He simply gives the young man the money that would be his. Now, that probably amounted to one-third of the entire estate. It was Jewish custom for the oldest brother to receive a double share. And as the older brother, that makes a lot of sense to me. I got to tell you, it really does. The remainder of the state then would be divided among the younger brothers. So if there were five brothers, they would divide the estate by six. The older brother would get a double share, okay? Um, you know, notice in verse 13 what happens next. It says, not long after that. What was happening with that money in his pocket? You know, it was burning a hole. He had to get out. He had to get away. It says that the younger son got together all he had, which probably was just the inheritance, and he set off for then a distant country. He had to get out and get away. He was looking for success and freedom. But in reality, he had never really explored the true meaning of success and freedom. You see, he was moved by emotion. Well, he had initiative. He had hopes and he had dreams, but he trusted in his own wisdom. And he was self-trusting at first and not wicked at first, but he was determined to live his own life and to live his own life on his own terms. The trouble with self-trust is that it becomes blind. And the son thought that he could find the way where others had become lost. And it seems as though he did indeed depend too much on himself. Perhaps the riches that he had acquired so quickly without having to work for them, maybe they uh, gave him a false sense of power. And so what happened? He spent every dime that he had, shekel that he had. Now, more than likely, he made a lot of friends. Uh, as long as the cash was free-flowing. But now it was gone and they were gone, not being friends in any true sense of the word. And to make matters worse, a famine arose in the place where he was. And so any friends that had remained loyal to the younger son probably had vanished by now, concerned only with their own welfare in such a time of need. And we read that he began to become in want. And certainly this would have included food, and some of the other material necessities of life, but it also would have included friendship, companionship. Most assuredly, he was in want of friendship, someone to care about him, to love and to be loved. And we read in verse 16, one of the most lonely verses in the New Testament, I think. No one gave him anything. And finally, in desperation, he persuaded a local farmer to let him take care of his pigs. Now you have to understand that for a Jew, this would have been the absolute lowest form of employment possible. Pigs were despised. They were considered to be unclean animals. But the son is in such dire condition that he's even tempted to eat the slop that he's feeding those hogs. What a change has taken place. Not long before he was on the top of the world, on his way to success and freedom. And now he finds himself in the lowest possible condition possible. It's really not much of a success story, is it? And it's probably this that shake him, shakes him to his senses. We read then in verse 17, when he came to his senses, the Living Bible reads when he finally came to his senses. Adds that little word finally in there. 
In the Revised Version, it reads, when he came to himself. And in all of those phrases, we see an attitude of of self-reverence, don't we? Which is really another name for remembering God. The younger son started out with the highest expectations, with dreams that he had dreamt since he was a child. And something happened. Something went awry. Something went wrong. In fact, everything went wrong. And we've all felt this at one time or another. Everything that we say, everything that we do, sometimes everything that we even think is all wrong. You know, you've heard of the Midas touch about King Midas. Remember, everything that he touched turned to gold. This is the exact opposite of that. We had a guy in college, his name was Harry Pohl. He had the Harry touch. Whenever he came into a room, you could expect something to get broken. Didn't matter what. He was a smoker. He set the, uh, one of the chairs in the student lounge on fire one time. Pulled down the shade. The sun was coming in. Pulled it right out of the wall. Went to adjust the television. The television would fall off the stand and crash to the floor. That was the Harry touch. Just like, really, the, the prodigal son in this story. Everything he touched seemed to just turn to destruction and failure. But the son does realize in his his dire condition that even the hired men at his dad's farm have food to eat. And here he is dying of hunger. So he decides that he's going to go back. Tough decision to make. But he decides he's going to go back and say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please hire me as a hired man. The prodigal has truly reverenced himself in this situation. He has humbled himself. His expectations are no longer sky high. And it is plans to go home. He doesn't expect to be reinstated as a member of the family. Now, his sights are set much lower. Instead, he just expects to be, become a servant. Actually, just a hired servant, not even a servant, there was a difference. A servant lived with a family. A servant had food and had clothing given to him and a roof over his head. The servant was, was there all the time. But a hired man, a hired servant, was only paid one day's wages at a time. They were only kept on as long as they were needed. And this was the expectation that the prodigal son had at this point. And so he returns home to his father. And we're going to leave him there for a minute. We're going to skip to the end of the story. We're going to rearrange the story just a little bit for our own purposes today because I want to look at the older brother. The older brother is another prodigal in this story of Jesus, and I'd like to talk about him now. I'm just going to rearrange things for our own purposes here. So we skip ahead in time a little bit. The younger son has already returned home. There's the big party going on. And now let's look at the older brother. He's been out in the field all day, from sunup until sundown, working hard. Probably was a hot day, and most likely he is very tired. And while he was working, he was probably thinking, what? How much easier it would be if the younger brother were here working with him. But he's off having a good time. Anyway, he comes back to the house, and before he even gets to the house, he hears the party. He hears the music, he hears the laughter, he hears the loud talking, and he asks one of the servants, what is going on? 
And the servant tells him the good news, right? Your brother has come back. Your father has welcomed him with open arms. And he's killed the fatted calf. He's throwing a party so he's, because he's so happy that he's home safe and sound. Well, that was all the older brother needed. After a hard day's work, slaving in the fields, his brother, who had pulled the most outrageous stunt he had ever considered possible, had the nerve to come back and show his face around here. To make matters even worse, the father had received him with open arms and was actually happy that he was back after completely blowing one-third of everything the old man was worth. And to make matters even worse, if that's possible, He was out in the field working, and no one invited him to the party. Pity party, you know? Aw, right? (laughs) You know, I can sympathize with the emotion expressed by the older brother. I won't mention any names, but there have been times when I've been associated with with younger brothers, (laughs) who at the time I felt got away with murder. Now, we're going back in ancient history here, granted. But immediately, I ranted and raved with such fervor and emotion that I really impressed myself. And I could go on and on about how unjust this was, how absolutely outrageous that was, and I really uh, made myself feel good when I did that. I never stopped to consider the situation. Immediately, I was caught up in a cause, my own, and never stopped to think that just perhaps there was a chance that I could be less than the ideal son that maybe, possibly, once or twice, come short of perfection. Well, the older son makes up his mind that he is not going in, he is not going to join the party, and so he stays outside, puts out that lower lip, and pouts. And finally, his father comes out, and the account reads that he pleads with him to come in. And here is the chance that he has been waiting for. Now he can finally unload all of the frustrations that have been building up inside him, and he lets his father have it both barrels. All these years I have served you, and never once have I disobeyed your orders, and you never even gave me a young goat. Can you just hear him say that? A young goat. Sorry, Harry. A young goat to have a feast with my friends. You know, his whole attitude here just shows that his years of obedience to his father have been years of grim duty, not ones of loving service. And we also see some self-pity here, don't we? He says he's being taken for granted. And we see self-righteousness here. Uh, Never once did I disobey your orders. Yeah, right. And he goes on to say, but when this son of yours comes back, he doesn't say my brother, he says this son of yours, When this son of yours comes back after spending your money on prostitutes, he really has a nasty mind here too. Nobody has said anything about prostitutes until he mentions it. Is it possible that the older brother was envious of the sins that the younger brother had committed? I don't know. He goes on to say that after all of this, you celebrate by killing the finest calf that we have. And here we even see some jealousy coming through. You know, it's easy to see how the younger brother was prodigal. If we consult a dictionary, prodigal means 
recklessly wasteful. Younger brother blew one-third of the entire estate, definitely recklessly wasteful. But how is the older brother prodigal? Well, I guess it can best be described like this. While the younger brother was prodigal in body, the older brother was prodigal with his heart. Even when the younger brother was away, even when he was in that distant, far-off land, a part of him, a part of his heart always remained back with the family, back with the father. But the older brother was prodigal at heart, and only his body was at home. His heart wasn't in his work. His heart wasn't with his father. His heart wasn't with his family. Instead, he was longing for that same life of success and freedom that the younger brother had tried to find. So these two, then, are prodigals in this story that Jesus told that day. But there is still another character who was prodigal, another who was recklessly wasteful. And I'd like to, us to consider that the father in the story was also recklessly wasteful. Let's go back now in the middle part of the story and consider the return of the younger son and the reaction of the father. We read that the father saw him while he was still a distance off. Now, I'll just recap this because we acted it out in the children's sermon. The father ran and, and embraced him and hugged him and kissed him, although the boys didn't want to do that, if you remember. He got the robe, which was for the uh, most distinguished guest, the ring, which indicated that he was still a member of the family, still an heir and the sandals for his feet, which communicated that he was not a hired slave, not a servant, but instead a member of the family. Item after item speaks of welcome. Item after item speaks of love. You know, uh, the father definitely was prodigal. He was recklessly wasteful in the giving of his understanding love. When the younger son asked for his share of the estate, the father didn't argue. He didn't put up a fuss. Perhaps he knew the younger son so well that he knew there were some lessons that just have to be learned by experiencing them. Some lessons have to be just experienced if they're ever to be learned at all. And God is the same way. He doesn't straitjacket us. We make the decisions. He made us that way after all, right? He didn't make us to just love him. He made us that we could choose. And that's why it's so valuable to him when we do choose to love him. When we show him love, it's because we've made that decision. We've made that choice. He wants us to want to love him. When we do make wrong decisions, he still loves us. When we come to our senses, when we return to ourselves, he forgives us with no recriminations. You know, I don't understand it, but when God forgives, he forgets. And we think, well, how is that possible? He's God. How can he possibly forget anything? But he forgets because he is God, and he makes the decision. He makes the choice to forget. The overall message of this parable is certainly one of love, God's love, his recklessly wasteful love for us. We all sin, we all make mistakes, but that isn't the end for us. Through Jesus Christ, we can obtain forgiveness when we possess that contrite heart, when we return 
to our senses, to ourselves, when we have that attitude of repentance. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. God forgives us. And, you know, in our human condition, this is probably a little bit more difficult to accept. We accept God's forgiveness pretty readily. But God also forgives our prodigal brother, too, our brother and sister. And sometimes that's harder for us to accept. But if we don't, what are we doing? We're really putting ourselves above God, aren't we? And that's a warning for us. You know, if we don't, we really become like the self-pitying, self-righteous and jealous older brother. It's only with God's help and his recklessly wasteful love that we can ever hope to rise above that. Let us pray.